Hello, this is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Andrew Gallimore. Dr. Gallimore is a neurobiologist, chemist, and pharmacologist with a focus on the relationship between psychedelic drugs, the brain, and consciousness as they relate to the structure of reality. He is currently based at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in Japan. We discussed his alien information theory and more. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Andrew Gallimore. Dr. Gallimore, thank you so much for joining me here on the Consciousness Podcast. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Um, I, guess, uh, I guess maybe we should start with maybe a brief overview of your, your book, which I will have a link to on, on the, uh, the website for people to go check that out. Um, but maybe tell us a little bit about, it's probably hard to do, but the alien information theory, and then we can talk a little bit about the, how it relates to the relationship between psychedelics, the brain and consciousness. So do you want to give us, is it possible to give a, a quick overview kind of, of the elevate, alien information theory? Elevator pitch kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, kind of. I mean, so, so I mean, most people know that I'm, I'm interested in DMT, you know, DMT is my kind of right. thing. It's, it's the, it's the, the molecule that I've been fascinated by for, for many, many years now. And, and what alien information theory is, is, is my way of my kind of, I describe it in the introduction as, as like my vision of, of reality, the way I think reality is constructed um, and how that relates to DMT. So the, the fundamental principle of the book, I mean, it's called alien information theory. It's, it, it is a type of information theory in that it, it posits um, as many scientists and philosophers uh, are increasingly want to do. Uh, it posits that, information lies at the ground of reality and that there is some kind of fundamental information generating code that generates information that self-complexifies and self-organizes to form increasingly complex structures, including ourselves. And we find ourselves kind of emergent within what I call uh, this cosmic game. Um, uh, and DMT, to cut a long story short, uh, DMT is kind of this embedded tool, this embedded technology that allows us to, um, our brain to interface with, to receive information from uh, the kind of the larger structure of reality, if you like, um, with the ultimate aim of us accessing this this place kind of permanently basically so it's 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 a it's a it's a narrative it's a narrative that goes from all the way from you know what is the definition of information all the way through to this kind of grand idea of of becoming interdimensional citizens of hyperspace at the end so uh, in in the sort of 250 pages of the book i cover an awful lot of ground yeah and so you mentioned you've been interested in this for for several years now what what kind of sparked your curiosity? What, what got you into DMT specifically and looking at it and how it interfaces or creates or, you know, defines reality? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a long story, but a lot of it is, is, is kind of accidental. You know, when I was a teenager, I became fascinated by um, altered states of consciousness. And I used to grow little, I used to buy seeds off the internet for visionary plants and kind of grow them in my bedroom. And my parents would 
you know, wonder what the fuck is going on. What's, what's he doing growing all these little plants? Um, uh, and, and so I was interested in, you know, the classic psychedelics. I was interested in mushrooms and mescaline and, and all these other kind of exotic Amazonian plants that harbored these psychedelic chemicals. Um, but DMT, I kind of stumbled across. Um, I was, um, I remember leafing through a, a book at a friend's house, a very old book. Um, and it, it, there was a section on, on psychedelics and the mm. usual suspects were in there, LSD, magic mushrooms, mescaline. And then I saw this little, very quite short paragraph that said DMT. And I thought, well, what on earth is that? I'd never heard of that. Uh, I mean, this was pre-internet days. This was like 93, 94, something like that. Um, so I yeah. was like 14 years old or something like that. And so um, it was before I could, it, these kind of um, ex more exotic psychedelics, if you like, were, were very well known outside of a very specific crowd. Um, so I'd never heard of DMT, but it, it described it as being this very short-acting LSD-like uh, psychedelic and I thought well that's fascinating because I'm interested in a drug you can kind of explore but you're, you're not kind of forced to be there for <laughs> sort of nine ten or eleven hours as you are with a you know high right. dose trip something like that so that piqued my interest and then and then uh, shortly after after I was I was talking to my friends at school about psychedelics and I was becoming interested in them and, and a friend of mine brought me a magazine some kind of regular, one of these weekly glossy magazine things. And he said, oh, you might be interested in this. And there was, in the back page, was an interview with Terence McKenna. And again, I'd never heard of this guy. <laughs> so um, I read this right. interview with Terence McKenna, and he described his favorite drug, which was DMT. And, um, and so I, I went out, I went to WH Smith, which was this kind of really bad bookshop in the UK, where I, I ordered... Uh, this is before Amazon as well. So, you know, I ordered Terence McKenna's books. I ordered True Hallucinations and um, what is it? Food of the Gods, I think it is. Uh, the Archaic Revival. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I ordered whatever I could get my hands of and kind of consumed that. And, and that was really the, um, I guess, the, the impetus really for me to become fascinated with, with, with DMT, with the ultimate aim at that point in my life to, to get hold of some, you know, to, to to find some of this mysterious, incredibly strange substance and, and try it for myself. Yeah, it is. It is uh, pretty strange as compared to a lot of the other psychedelics. So, what mm. what do you think the relationship is, if this is even possible to answer, between DMT, the brain itself, and consciousness? Yeah, well, it's well, that's a multi-layered question. I mean, so. Consciousness is, is, is tricky, and I, I, I always sidestep the issue of consciousness. What we know is that DMT, um, like all of the, the psychedelics, um, um, modulates brain activity. It has very specific effects on brain activity, on the information really generated by the brain. The brain is this, this very complex information generator, information processor. And um, your the kind of the world you experience from moment to moment throughout your your life, whether you're awake, whether you're dreaming, or, or whether you're you know at the peak of DMT trip, this world is always is is always constructed from information that's generated by these extremely complex networks of of neurons in your brain. And what psychedelics do, DMT in particular, is they they modify that information in a very particular way. Um, 
So that changes the structure of your, your, the informational structure of your phenomenal world, the world you experience. Um, and that, thus, you know, that's kind of the relationship between the drug and consciousness because the, the information generated by your brain is kind of experienced from your subjective self-conscious perspective uh, as the world that you, you exist within. Um, now, that doesn't explain why a brain should be conscious or why um, this particular structure, this particular part, part of the human organism should exhibit this thing we call consciousness or self-awareness or, or, or there's, there's something like to be it or whatever definition right. of consciousness you want to use. But clearly there's a relationship there. That's obvious that when you change the brain in a certain way, consciousness changes or the, the, the structure of consciousness. I prefer to describe it like that. The structure of consciousness, the structure of the world that you experience changes and it changes in a very particular way when, when DMT enters, enters the brain. Okay. You, you mentioned uh, information. Mm. What, what is information? Um, okay. That's a, that's a good question. And, and there are, there are a thousand answers to that question. If I was to ask most people <laughs> what information was, they would say it's kind of what you know about something uh, versus perhaps what you don't know. Um, right. But that's kind of, it's a bit vague, right? Uh, everyone understands what information is, but very few people can define it. Um, I define it specifically as being generated. I mean, okay, formally, information is a reduction of uncertainty. So if I flip a coin, for example, as that coin is spinning, I don't know whether it's going to land head or tails. I know it's going to land either head or tails, but I don't know which. As soon as it lands uh, and I see that it's heads, I've reduced the uncertainty there. I now know it's not tails, it's heads, and information has been generated. And in fact, in that case, a very specific unit of information has been generated called the bit. Um, so any, when, a, when a system such as a coin or a, a computer transistor inside a computer chip, or anything really, anything that can select between a certain, a finite number of states can generate information. Um, so whether it's a coin, whether it's a dice, you know, if you had a, a single six-sided die and you, you roll that die, there are six possibilities. When it selects one, you generate information. Um, you would generate more information there than you do with um, the coin, which can only have two states. Mm -hmm. So the, what the brain is, if you like, is the brain is very, very large numbers uh, of these two-state systems. You can think of the neuron highly over, in a highly oversimplified sense as being something that can switch on or off. It can fire and it's sort of an electrochemical signal or it can remain quiet. Uh, and when we have very, very large numbers of these um, interconnected neurons, they can generate vast amounts of information. Uh, because the brain can essentially be in a, 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 an extremely large number of states. Um, and each of those single states contains a vast amount of information, which um, from your perspective emerges as your, the world you experience. So whether you, it's, it's quite difficult to appreciate, um, but actually your world is, uh, is constructed from information. It's kind of subjective information. And you say your world, is that, is that what reality is? And, hmm. you know, I hear people 
regarding dreams and psychedelic experiences come, you know, wake up or come out of it and say, was that real? Mm. So when you're talking about the information organization of the brain and BMT modulating all this information, are, mm. are those two separate realities? That's a good question. So, so, so in a sense, all worlds that you experience are real in the sense that they're all constructed from information that's generated by the brain. This, this is always the case. Um, so when you are awake and going about your normal daily life, the world you experience is, is, is built from information. And that also applies when you're dreaming. So in a sense, the dream world is as real as the waking world. Um, the difference is that the, during the waking, during waking life, um, there is a mapping between information from the outside, you know, outside of your brain uh, and the information inside your brain. And this is the basis of perception. It's the way that your brain builds not just a kind of a model of the external world, but a useful model, a functional model, a model that allows you to navigate the environment, to, um, to avoid predators, to find prey, to find a mate, to find food, all of these things. Um, this is all because your brain is constructing a model that it's constantly uh, using, it's constantly sampling information from the environment and using that to kind of refine this model. But the world you experience, the subjective phenomenal world, is always the model. It's always a kind of simulation of reality or a simulation of the external world. You never kind of interact directly with the external world, whatever that might be. Uh, now, when you're dreaming, the brain builds the world in exactly the same way. It's the same model. The difference is that um, sensory information from outside, from the environment, is kind of is cut off. You, you, the brain is unable to receive it, which is why the dream world can mm. become slightly is more kind of fluid and unstable and sometimes quite bizarre. But it's built in exactly the same way. Um, so then, when it comes to the DMT world, and this is a better question than simply saying is it real? Um, what I ask is: Is the DMT world more like a dream world in that it's it's, um, it, it, it's constructed by the brain, but it's disconnected from any kind of environment. In other words, it's entirely constructed by the brain. Um, or like the waking world, is it constructed by the brain as well? But is it also receiving information from some other place, um, which we, you know, some hidden dimension of reality, uh, which is um, kind of informing and modulating uh, that constructed world? That's a better question to ask um, because whether the world is real or not, whether the DMT space is real, your brain, for you to experience it, your brain always has to construct a model of that reality. Um, and that's the, the experience that you have. That's the world that appears behind your eyes when you're at the peak of a DMT trip. Um, so that's kind of how I think of it. Now, the... Okay. Uh, the yeah, sorry, <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> Yeah, no, it does. It does. And I don't want to cut you off. Where are we headed after that? Well, I was going to say, um, so the orthodox position, the orthodox scientific position would be that DMT must be the former. In other words, it must be more like a dream, just a complex hallucination. Um, right. Because there is no obvious way that the brain could be receiving information from some other orthogonal hidden dimension of reality. That would be the kind of the the mainstream orthodox scientific position. However, as I have written about extensively, this um, 
orthodox position is not without its problems. Because what we know is that the brain is a product of evolution. It, your brain evolved. It learned to construct this model of reality, uh, your normal waking mm -hmm. world. Um, throughout daily life by sampling information from the environment. So as far as we know, the brain should know how to build only one type of world, and that is the normal waking world. That's the world you experience every day, if you, uh, you've always experienced, and it's the world, basically, that's the world that you experience in the, in, in the dream state as well for most of the time. So the question is, when you smoke DMT, how is the brain suddenly able to construct entirely uh, un independent worlds that have no, bear no relationship whatsoever to the normal waking world. How is the brain able to do that with such efficiency, with such ease, with such facility? You know, you, you smoke one of the simplest alkaloids and most common alkaloids in the plant kingdom, and suddenly the brain switches from to an, an entirely new channel uh, of reality, essentially. You know, I describe it as like finding a new channel on your television and then realizing the, the aerial has been disconnected. It's like, well, where did that come from? Um, or, you know, or, or, or a five-year-old British child who only speaks English suddenly switching to speaking fluent Central Siberian Yupik, you know, this kind of exotic, yeah. bizarre language. Like, how did he learn that? That's impossible. Uh, and it's, the, it's kind of, in a nearest, neurological sense, it, it's the, kind of the same thing, in my opinion. You know, how did the brain, the brain must know how to build the DMT space, whether it's hallucinated or whether it's somehow informed by information, modulated by information from some other, other, other space. Uh, and and if, if you choose the, the orthodox position that it's entirely hallucinated, you've got a hell of an explanation to come up with as to how the brain is able to construct these bizarre hyper-technological alien realities of, you know, kind of crystalline clarity and extreme complexity. And when you say alien, mm. what do you mean by that word? Um, well, I, I don't mean, um, you know, little gray people emerge, you know, arriving right. in metallic discs. Uh, I mean, alien in its, it's much more, uh, I guess, fundamental meaning as being other, as in non, in this case, I would regard it as being non-earthly intelligence, but this could also mean non-universe intelligence or um, intelligence that is outside of, um, outside of our kind of thin slice of, of, of reality. That's what I would regard as alien. The form that this alien could take um, is probably, there are probably a vast number of possibilities that we, we, we could we could think of but yeah that's what i think of as, as an alien i regard the the entities that you, one meets in the dmt space as aliens but not necessarily in right. in, 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 in like the gray aliens or you know this kind of thing but but alien intelligences i guess i would would be the, the best way to describe them okay and you, and you talk about this this alien reality that dmt can give the brain access to hmm. in terms of things like a, a fundamental code and, and constructing that subjective experience. And um, another phrase I read, I think is ancestral neuromodulator. Hmm. You know, what, what, what is that? What is this fundamental code and, and how does that relate to kind of what you've been talking about so far? So, okay. So, so the idea of the fundamental code is that 
basically the, the ground of reality there is this this information generator now now we we take a step back a second so the the basic idea is that there is this Imagine that you were an alien intelligent, extremely advanced alien intelligence, and you wanted to create or culture, if you like, or grow other intelligences. Now, why you would want to do that is a, is a different question entirely. Uh, but let's imagine you, you wanted to act like this alien programmer. Um, so how would you go about it? What's the way to do it? Now, you could, you could approach this from a kind of a biblical uh, and, and think of it as, uh, as as crafting intelligences, like man was made, you know, in God's image or something like that. But I take a, a different approach, a more of a an algorithmic approach, in that if you if you, if there if you have a basic kind of design for a universe, which is that fundamentally you have information. Um, you, fundamental units of information that can interact according to certain rules. Um, so the model that I use in the book is something called a cellular automaton, which is a square grid where each square of the grid can exist in either a, a black state or a white state, or it's called a dead or alive state. Um, and, and, mm -hmm. and basically these, this two dimensional square grid, each, each uh, cell, as it's called, each square on the grid can will update its state based upon the states of the it, its neighbors, and and so basically you've got a patterns of information interacting with patterns of information. That's the basic principle here. And from this very very from very very simple rules, you often get the emergence of highly complex patterns uh, on on this grid. Now, if you apply that to uh, fundamental reality, the fundamental structure of the universe, what you would have is a fundamental code that generated information, but generated all possible rule sets, if you like. So all the different ways that, um, that these fundamental patterns of information can in interact um, according to you know, all the different possible rules of their interaction, you would uh, generate using this code. And it's actually, you don't need mm -hmm. a very complex code to do that. And so basically all possible variations of universes uh, would be generated by this fundamental code. And in some of them, or probably most of them, the vast majority, maybe 99%, nothing would happen. It would grind down or it would approach, it would kind of descend into a tumult of ceaseless chaos. However, mm. in a small number of universes, you would get the emergence of complexity. Complexity emerges uh, at this, this fine line between order and chaos, what's called the edge of chaos. This is where complex but dynamic um, and stable structures can emerge and living organisms fall into that category. It's sort of layers of complexity. So if you wanted to, to get back to the original question, if you wanted to um, culture or grow uh, or generate intelligences, uh, what you would do is you would create all possible universes and then you would select those, um, those that showed the emergence of, of complex life. And, and that's actually much cheaper computationally um, than it is to, to try and find the correct rules of the universe. You know, many theoretical physicists or uh, co cosmologists would describe this kind of multiverse theory, you know, that the, the fundamental constants of the universe um, right. are, are, are finely tuned. And it's the reason they're finely tuned is because there's an infinite number or a vast 
a practically infinite number of, of different variations, uh, most of which don't produce the kind of complex behavior we see this in, in the universe. So it's kind of that idea, um, but using the idea of information. Okay. And how, how does, in our world, how, I don't even know if that's the right term, but in our world, with our brains, how does our brain um, receive this information or interface with this information or work within this, with this fundamental code? Yeah, so this is, this is quite complex. And there's, there's like three chapters of the book are, 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 <laughs> um, are spent kind of explaining this idea. Uh, but, but what your brain is doing is, is your brain, as I said, is, is, is generating patterns of information. And this happens at all levels. So it's happening uh, globally. You know, you can, you can look at the patterns of information. If you put someone in an fMRI machine, for example, a you know, brain scanner, mm -hmm. you can look at the patterns there. Uh, but also if you can look deeper, you can look at the patterns of the, the neurons if, you can, if you're able to image much, much deeper. And then within that, you get deeper and deeper and deeper. And ultimately, at the ground of reality, um, which, of course, the brain is, is constructed from, uh, there are many layers of, of emergent complexity above, uh, but fundamentally it, it's built from this information. And so what, when DMT enters the brain, it changes the patterns of information generated by the brain. And, 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 and this happens all the way down. This is something called downwards information flow, which I discuss at length in the book. But ultimately it means that changes that occur at uh, kind of the global level of the brain that you can see on an MRI scanner. Um, also cause changes that emerge uh, right at the ground of reality. And DMT um, causes very specific patterns um, of information at the, at the very, very, very ground of reality. And these are kind of signatures um, that allow uh, information to flow from these normally hidden dimensions. So when, when, when DMT is not present in the brain, these very specific um, what I call perturbation brain patterns, these patterns of information at the ground of reality. They're not there. Uh, but when DMT enters the brain, uh, they emerge at this lower level, and that gates information. It gates the flow of information from, from normally hidden dimensions of reality. That sounds rather complex and strange, but if you read the book, actually, it's all kind of explained in, in a lot of detail. So, yeah, so the idea is DMT changes the information generated by the brain, which allows information to flow from these places that are normally cut off so i i describe it as imagine that you're you're living in a kind of flatland world and you're unable to receive you know you're you're this completely two-dimensional creature and you're unable to receive information from the third dimension except when um certain, your your brain kind of uh, starts to adopt certain patterns of information then you can start to receive information from the third dimension and then you bet your brain essentially becomes a three-dimensional object. So, so when DMT enters the brain, actually, what I think is happening is your brain is becoming like a, a higher-dimensional or hyper-dimensional brain complex, I call it. So the brain ceases to be restricted to this, three, this kind of three-plus-one-dimensional reality, you know, three spatial dimensions plus time, but actually becomes part of this higher-dimensional structure. Um, so we, we become part of the greater structure of reality. And that lasts for as long as DMT is present in the brain. And then the information is kind of cut off again. Does any of it um, persist after the DMT wears off? Or is that just purely our, quote, two-dimensional memory of it? 
Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting question. So, so one of the kind of um, frustrating things about the DMT experience is that you're kind of people always kind of joke that they're, they're shown the secrets to everything, you know, the life, the universe and everything. Uh, and then they, they forget it again. Um, and it's kind of quite frustrating that it's quite difficult to bring back information uh, from the DMT space. And the reason I think that is, is because I think the DMT space is a high dimensional reality. And people do often describe um, the experience of, of being in a high dimensional space where they can see all sides of an object at once. So they're seeing you know, completely impossible structures that couldn't exist in a three dimensional world. So that makes sense. Um, so when you come back from this space, your brain has to create a memory. Now, a memory, when you remember something, what's actually happening is, is the brain is in a way replaying it uh, for you. Um, and so in order for you to remember a DMT experience, your brain has to be able to replay that in the absence of DMT. Now, that's kind of impossible. It's like, um, you know, if you, can, if you imagine going into a four-dimensional space and seeing a, a tesseract, um, and it would be completely confounding to you, this four-dimensional spatial object. And when you come back, yeah. you might struggle to explain what that was like. You might be able to do a rough kind of sketch, uh, but, but it would be impossible for you to really imagine it. Um, and, you know, imagine there were five, six, seven, eight, nine-dimensional objects and that kind of thing. It's just completely beyond comprehension. And so I think some people's brains are quite good at... Um, kind of rendering these high dimensional structures into a low dimensional form, taking um, almost like the shadow of these, uh, of these structures, um, you know, like the, the shadow of a, if you'd seen a sphere um, as, a, as a flatland being, you might represent it as a circle and say it was something like this, but in three dimensions, you know what I mean? Um, so, so I think that's something you can learn to do is to kind of render and project these high dimensional structures into, into your lower dimensional um, brain. Um, but, but it, I think it, it takes a lot of practice and which, and, and, and you also have to get over the, the inherent sense of shock and bewilderment and astonishment and all that stuff. Uh, so all of these come together uh, and really make the DMT state quite difficult um, to kind of bring back useful information, which is why you need a lot of experience um, with the drug and, and a, a lot of practice and really to spend a lot more time in there as well. Um, it's, it's, it's a very difficult place to navigate for sure. Um, and this is really one of the reasons why, you know, I've, I've been working with Rick Strassman to actually think of a, a better way to actually bring us into the DMT space than simply kind of spoking it and holding tight. Yeah, because it must be a difference. Because it sounds um, from reports like a completely different experience from other psychedelics, which seem to kind of alter a waking consciousness. But the the person that under the influence still has control. It sounds like DMT. You're almost flipped into a, a whole different reality where you don't have the same faculties and tools to to deal with it yeah so 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 what you find i always describe it as as like the regular psychedelics lsd psilocybin at, at normal doses anyway at very high doses it's a whole different game um but but at, at regular doses it's it's kind of like you're nudging 
the reality channel just slightly out of tune and it becomes less stable becomes more fluid it becomes more dynamic um, it becomes mm-hmm. richer all of these things um, and what DMT seems to do for reasons which you know remains largely unexplained but which I do offer an explanation for uh, DMT seems to do is to, is to is to kind of fluidly and efficiently and completely and perfectly switch the reality channel to a completely different um, completely new um, channel Uh, Whereas the other drugs, you know, just nudge it kind of slightly out of tune. Having said that, uh, certainly uh, Salvinorin A from Salvia Divinorum seems to have a, um, is is extremely potent and seems to have this kind of reality channel effect as well. Mm. Um, And also very high dose mushrooms are also able to uh, approach something that resembles the DMT space. So so I, I do think DMT is very special for a number of reasons, but it's, it's certainly not true that only DMT can switch the reality channel. Um, I, I, I don't think there's a sing. I don't think it's like a case that there's just two reality channels, you know, the waking consensus reality channel and then the DMT channel. I think there are a number of possible, um, channels that the brain the human brain can interface with and that the different drugs will, will, will change the information in a slightly different way um and, and kind of resonates if you like uh with with different um aspects uh, of reality it's yeah that's the kind of the general principle okay and what you know th- there's a lot of um fascinating information and ideas around around this concept is is there a, a practical side of this you know of somebody who goes into that um that reality with DMT uh, and then comes back out of it. Is, is there anything practical about, about doing this or having been through that? So are you talking about the kind of more, the extended, extended DMT trips generally, or, I mean, it depends what you mean by practical, I guess. I mean, I think exploration of the limits of consciousness is, is an end in itself. Yeah. I think right. what what DMT shows you is that we live in a an extremely strange reality that is is far you know, as Terence McKenna used to echo. You know, it's not not only stranger than we suppose, but stranger than we can suppose. That we that DMT demonstrates with ferocious um, um, efficiency. You know, it, it's kind of it's brutal. Uh, it, it brutally demonstrates to you that that. We know so so very little about the about the structure of reality, and and, and if if it does only that, then that is worth it. Um, but I think with DMT we have this remarkable technology that's been presented to us for some reason, um, and we must treat it, in in my opinion, as a technology, and we must learn to use it and to develop it and to use it in the best way. And bring our best technological tools apparatus to the table in doing so. I think we shouldn't assume that the traditional or the kind of 20th century approaches to using DMT, which is to vaporize it in a small glass pipe, is the be all and end all at all. I think we need to accept that, you know, we, 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 we have been given this technology, this gift, if you like, and that 
we should work out what's the best way to do it. What's the best way to use this drug in order to explore this space? Um, and, you know, I, I think that the kind of technologies that I'm suggesting and that I'm kind of developing uh, are, are, are pointing towards that end. I think um, we shouldn't restrict ourselves in, in, in that way or, or, or over mythologize DMT and, and over spiritualize or uh, all this kind of stuff that DMT often gets cloaked within a lot of new age, kind right. of, which I think doesn't really help. Um, DMT clearly gates access to beings of immense intelligence and power and, and, extremely hyper-type technological spaces and realms. And I think it's kind of silly and foolish for us to think that we've got it all worked out or that we know the best way to use DMT. Um, that's not to dismiss traditional ways of consuming DMT. For example, you know, in, in ayahuasca preparation, this is itself a technology, um, you know, combining these plants, specific plants and very specific plants indeed, um, is, is certainly a technology. It's, it's, a, it's a jungle technology, but it's a technology all the same. Yeah. Uh, and we should think the same. We should think in a similar kind of way. That doesn't mean going back to the jungle, but think what technology do we have as, as advanced beings with an eye towards galactic citizenship? You know, we are a species now that is looking up to the stars and thinking, what's our next move from Earth? Um, and, and, and you know, we're kind of feeling that we perhaps, or many of us are feeling that perhaps we've kind of outgrown the, the cradle and that it's time for us to think about um, relinquishing, <laughs> perhaps relinquishing our material body entirely ultimately. Uh, but certainly yeah. we, should, we should be using the technologies um, that we have available to, to, to enter this space, to remain within this space for a reasonable amount of time and to explore it properly and to establish two-way communication with the intelligences that, um, that inhabit this space. And I don't think, I think it's rather rude, actually. I've often said it's kind of rather impertinent to kind of burst into this, this realm and kind of look around wide-eyed and shocked for five minutes and then, then disappear again. Um, I don't think that's a particularly diplomatic way of handling interdimensional relations. Um, so yeah. I think, you know, we should be aiming, if, you know, if, we, if we take this place seriously, and I do, and think actually this could be a place that exists, that, that is populated by intelligent beings that, that are aware, that are self-aware, that are conscious, uh, that are just as real as we are, um, then we should be approaching them with a little bit more uh, since, uh, seriousness. Um, and yeah. using our, the best technologies that we have available. And that's what you mean by the interdimensional citizens in this, in this hyperspace or those, those beings? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I, in the book, I, I work towards quite a kind of, uh, to a very particular kind of end point, but, but really just generally, if we establish the first thing for us to do would be to establish two-way communication uh, with these intelligences from, uh, you know, from outside our universe and, and to work out what is the relationship between us and them. Uh, and that in itself, you know, to, to definitively establish the existence of intelligences, not only beyond Earth, but beyond the universe, uh, would be by far the most profound and significant discovery 
in the history of humankind. There'd be nothing that would come even close to it. It would be orders of magnitude, uh, of, of more significance. It would be a paradigm shifting in ways that we, we can't even imagine. Um, uh, and so that would be the first step, if you like, would just establish the existence of these definitively and establish communication with them. Then we start to think, well, what do we do with that relationship? Is it just the relationship that we have while we're, where we, you know, for five minutes occasionally when we smoke DMT, or is it something that we can uh, establish on a, on a more kind of semi-permanent or even more permanent basis? Is there a way for us to become part of that reality? Uh, are we in a sense trapped in this lower dimensional slice of reality? Um, and that DMT somehow provides a route, a gate for us to, uh, certainly, first of all, simply to access this high dimensional system of which we are only a slice, then ultimately, perhaps to uh, enter it permanently. And so we would essentially become uh, interdimensional citizens of hyperspace, we would become part of that diverse panoply of, of intelligent beings that exist within this high dimensional DMT space, you know, and then <laughs> I guess, ultimately, uh, when, when, people you know when beings on lower dimensional slices of reality when they smoke dmt or somehow find a gate we would be part of that that um you know dmt entity crowd that would welcome them um into that new space and so you can think of the dmt yeah. space as this ground where new intelligences emerge first in lower dimensional space uh, through this system of creating these infinite variants of, of these universes and then they kind of become part of the high dimensional system so you can think of you know if you were if you were an alien intelligence and you wanted to somehow create more and more um diverse intelligences that would be one way you would, you would do it so we are one of those emergent intelligences in this lower dimensional slice getting ready to uh, transcribe ourselves if you like into this high dimensional system okay all right far out right? um yeah it is, it is really far out and it's amazing to think about um now you mentioned the i guess they call it the nndmt from plants any thoughts or observations from um dmt derived from an animal like like the desert sonoran toad well i mean i'm different? not yes i mean well from yeah, so the Bufo alvarius, uh, the Colorado River toad, right? This is the toad we're talking about. Uh, yeah. Is um, produces five methoxy DMT. So these are different right. molecules entirely. So it's not DMT for a start. Now I'm not one of these people who thinks that you know the that you can that whether DMT comes from a plant or whether it's made in a laboratory that that makes any difference. And I would I would offer a thousand dollars or more if someone could reliably tell me whether a certain batch of DMT had come from a plant or whether it had come from a laboratory, there's no difference. A molecule is a molecule. You know, humans are part of nature. We are, there's no such thing as an artificial molecule as such. Um, so, so I don't think that that dichotomy is a true one, the, the, the natural artificial dichotomy. I think that's a false one. I think it's misleading and unhelpful. Right. But with, with the river, the Colorado river toad, um, that produces 5-methoxy DMT, um, and and that's an entirely different beast DMT. So NNDMT, mm. which is what we're talking about here, is this highly visual drug that seems to transport you to um, uh, this high-dimensional reality. Whereas 5-methoxy 
DMT seems to transport you completely past that. Um, it seems to take you to kind of a formless void uh, of just pure consciousness. So it, is, it takes you past all structure. So you can imagine, you know, we, we live in this kind of three-dimensional world. Imagine the DMT world is kind of maybe the sixth or seventh dimensional reality. And then the, the five-methoxy DMT space is this infinite dimensional kind of pure void kind of space of infinite mm. or pure consciousness. That's how it's been described um, to me, I think. You know, that, that makes most sense to me yeah. anyway. Yeah, so, so they're very different. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Well, just uh, to wrap up some things, you know, what's, what's uh, coming next from you? What are you going to be studying and what, what kind of breakthroughs do you see possibly coming down the pike in, in consciousness or in hyperspace or any of this stuff and what, you know, anything new for the alien information theory? Yeah. So, so I'm currently still, so so I published this paper with Rick Strassman uh, like three or four years ago now, this idea of using technology from anesthesiology to extend the DMT state. So rather than being a five-minute experience, mm. you can actually use a, con a target, it's got a target-controlled intravenous infusion machine to actually bring the DMT levels into the brain to a constant level and maintain that over time. So there are now groups that, are, uh, that I'm kind of working with loosely anyway, uh, as best I can from this small island in Japan um, that are actually trying to implement this in humans. Um, so that's something that's kind of ongoing. And, and, and the ultimate aim there would be to, ex to kind of formally explore the DMT space, you know, as, I've, as I've suggested we should be doing. So that's on, on the cards. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the main thing. You know, in terms of consciousness more generally, um, you know, DMT, DMT and, and psychedelics show you that the that, that consciousness is this extremely complex and strange structure. Um, but I don't think that kind of orthodox modern neuroscientific techniques will ever will really get to the ground of consciousness. I think people often think that I'm this kind of orthodox materialist or reductionist, you know, uh, but I'm not really. I mean, I think that consciousness is absolutely fundamental. And I think you're not ever going to be able to explain consciousness in terms of anything else. Yeah. Ultimately, I think that consciousness is the information generator. Um, so I think more and more scientists now are, are, are beginning to think that consciousness has this fundamental place in, in reality. Um, uh, and I think that's long overdue. I think it was a huge mistake when we, we decided that that the, the matter was, this was fundamental and that we were going to try and explain consciousness in terms of of matter and that's failed for the last you know two three hundred years uh, and will continue to do so in my opinion but once once scientists uh, once it becomes less um kooky um to to suggest that consciousness is fundamental i think once you start thinking not about how can you explain consciousness but really what are the patterns of consciousness what does consciousness do what are the structures and how does consciousness complexify and you know that's really what what i think brains are is they are complex patterns of information which is really complex patterns uh, of consciousness so so, th so these kind of ideas i think are going to become more and more prominent um in the future and, and i'm going to be continually writing about these ideas you know i'm i'm 
I'm, I'm writing my second book at the moment. It's still in the early stages, but again, it's going to be about psychedelics, trying to unify psychedelics. My alien information theory was, was mainly about DMT, really, and the whole narrative mm-hmm. about DMT, whereas this next book is going to be really unifying uh, really all psychedelics into a kind of coherent structure of, of what they do and how they re- relate to the brain and how that relates to uh, reality. So I hope, to, hope it to be the kind of definitive guide to um, the effects of psychedelics on the brain and, and, and the mind. Well, wonderful. I, I will definitely look out and be excited for that book. So <laughs> I can't wait. Thank you. Well, uh, yeah, Dr. Gallimore, thank you so much for uh, taking your time. That, that was a fascinating conversation, and I'm, I'm truly grateful for you sharing all that information with us. Sure. You, I should also say, actually, that um, people can go to my website, buildingalienworlds.com, where they can find you know, a lot of my talks and my papers, and they can even buy Perfect. the book from the site and have a, a preview of the book as, there as well. Perfect. Awesome. And I will make sure to link to all that awesome. um, on the podcast. Thank you very much. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the Consciousness Podcast at our Twitter handle at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.